Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. You're listening to You, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast on Radio MD, iHeart, or wherever you download us from. Thank you very much for doing that. This is a B segment, and the Bs are always great guests. I think this is 1102B, so if it isn't, Caitlin, you'll have to correct me, but I think it's 1102B, and the A's are always the latest medical news of the week and what it means to you. The B's are guests, and today's guest is Dr. Jenny Wang. She is a Taiwanese-American clinical psychologist and a true expert on Asian-American medical health and racial trauma in Asian-American populations. Obviously, we've heard a lot about that with the Southern California events of the past several months. Um, The book is Permission to Come Home, Reclaiming Mental Health as Asian-Americans. It's published by Grand Central Publishing. And her website, like many who are experts in the field, is her name, um, dot com. So it's Jenny Wang, Ph.D., um, Jenny, J-E-N-N-Y, um, Wang, W-A-N-G, Ph.D., dot com. I apologize for that ring. The uh, book, again, is nothing to do with our sponsor, but our sponsor is Life First Naturals. Life First Naturals um, are the makers, lifefirstnaturals.com, are the makers of both True Biotics and Bovine Colostrum. Bovine, you can find, I, I shouldn't even bother telling you more about it other than to say, go to their website, lifefirstnaturals.com, because that's where the randomized double-blind controlled trials are showing the benefits of, for example, bovine colostrum in preventing after-exercise and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory disease medication, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication like Advil and and ibuprofen changes in gut health and bloating. Um, Nothing to do with our topic, which is the um, history. I guess it would would be, I've always um, admired um, the way the Asian culture is a hierarchical culture honoring the elderly, but that leads to some abnormalities, doesn't it, Jenny? Well, it leads to some complexity, right? Because I think that on the one hand, honoring our elders and really respecting them and in some ways deferring to them is a really amazing way that our culture tends to show love to our older generation, right? This idea that we would care for our elderly parents, that we would support them. Um, it's a it's a lovely testament to kind of the love that runs across generations. And at the same time, you know, what happens when that older generation has certain expectations about our lives and that comes in contradiction to the lives that we might want to live as the younger generation? So it adds a layer of complexity, and I think it's something that we have to kind of question and explore. Now, one of the... Um interesting things I think that I was unaware of is the um, 
immigrant difference, and, and maybe it's a mental health issue, as you state, or maybe it is um, a way of not talking about it, that is the difference between the Taiwanese and the Chinese and um, the other, if you will, um, parts of Asian America. Is there a rivalry? Is there differences in their practices around mental health, if you will, as you say, at the permission to come home? Mm. Yes, I think that, you know, this term Asian American is a pretty large brushstroke. It's kind of a monolithic statement, which encompasses over 40 plus ethnic groups that or live in the United States. So on the one hand, we don't want to kind of say that we're all the same because we're absolutely not. Every culture and ethnicity has their own rituals, practices, values that really drive their communities. And at the same time, as Asian diaspora or people who live outside of their homelands, they are faced with some similarities, right? That as immigrants, you've had to migrate from one country to another under very different circumstances, either coming here in pursuit of education or work or as refugees fleeing war-torn countries. Those differences in migration or reasons for migration also kind of then determine how well resourced you are when you arrive to a new country. Um, as Asian Americans, we also face in some ways, um, similar struggles with discrimination, prejudice, racism, right? That those are um, parts of our existence living in a country where there aren't predominantly Asian individuals who live amongst us. And so having to navigate the themes of assimilation as well as acculturation and what that does to our own identity as people of color and as Asian immigrants. Now, one of the interesting I think, I, and I don't know whether it's a parallel or uh, situations, is that you bring up the difference, um, and again, we're talking with Jenny Wang, the author of uh, the book Permission to Come Home, um, the difference between um, mental health admission, I don't know if that's the right word, uh, mental health, seeking mental health treatment, and what it means in different cultures. Um, and even in the United States, I mean, it, it, it has been a, um, not a widely accepted thing. Even at the Cleveland Clinic now where I practice um, internal medicine, the, it, it can be that the patient can ask that the mental health part of their record be close to anybody but them. Um, and so there is a difference in mental health, um, I guess you'd call it um, uh, treatment acceptance among different um, uh, ethnicities or cultures. Absolutely. As Asian Americans, compared to kind of white counterparts, we are three times less likely to seek mental health care or support. And yet, you know, it's not to say that our rates of mental health disruption or difficulties are any worse or better than the general kind of American population. And so in that regard, you know, that 
people are struggling with in our community. However, there's not um, an openness or even a sense of accessibility to mental health care. And I think one of the big things that runs across cultures is that mental health is still highly stigmatized. And so in that sense, the barriers to getting there, even when people have the financial resources or the insurance to cover mental health support, they are still not reaching out. And so I think the barriers in terms of how mental health is still not a normalized part of overall health really keeps people suffering in silence. So we've gone into some of the, what I call the, the reclaiming part of reclaiming mental health um, as part of the subtitle of the book, uh, Reclaiming Mental Health as Asian Americans. Um, but let's, let's talk a little bit about you because this is such an interesting topic. How did you, now where, how'd you come to Houston? Were you always in Houston? No. Um, so I went to undergrad at UT Austin and then completed my PhD at UT Southwestern Medical Center and then went to Duke University Medical Center to do my postdoc and then was on faculty there. And so, you know, my journey to kind of Houston ultimately ended up back here because we have family and extended family who live in the Texas area. Um, but honestly, coming into mental health as an Asian American, so many years ago, that was really unusual. Mental health was not a field that was necessarily encouraged within Asian communities because it was not something that we talked about. It was something that was very much stigmatized and kind of hidden in the shadows. And in fact, um, you said that th th there's a phrase in the book, I think, um, if I'm quoting you right, failure means you are flawed. Um, is that... Is, I mean, that's part of the Asian, is that part of the pan-Asian or just specific areas of Asia culture? Well, you know, at the same time, we don't want to say that all Asian Americans have a similar kind of framework. But if you think about, you know, immigrants who came to the United States, one of the things that they came for was opportunity and hope. And so, you know, there are many Asian immigrants and of our parents or earlier generations who came to America seeking new opportunities, more opportunities for our future generations. So this idea of failure kind of not being an option was perhaps something that we learned as children, that perhaps in order to build stability for our families that had no roots here in the United States, no social support, no support network, we had to succeed. We had to do well in school. We had to get into higher education. We had to secure stable jobs in order to build stability for ourselves and our families. And as immigrants and as children of immigrants, we might feel as though we kind of owed our parents that at the very least, having seen our own parents work, you know, manual labor jobs, working seven days a week, you know, seeing them really struggle so that they could provide for us financially. So this idea of failure or taking risks, doing things that were outside of the box was not necessarily something that was encouraged. And so sometimes when we fail, we might internalize those failures as identity stories about how we're incompetent or we're not able to succeed because of some fatal flaw, when in fact, failure is how we get to the point of success. 
They are redirections, opportunities to grow. But if you fear failure, it will keep you from really being able to access that growth. Now, I've got to ask you a, 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 another question about your history. How did your parents feel about you going to Raleigh-Durham, very different area than uh, Houston or, or Austin? You know, I think I grew up in New Jersey, actually. And so I grew up in an area where it was predominantly, you know, white, and I was in the minority often. Um, and so I think as an Asian American and as a person of color, we are constantly code switching between spaces that feel safe, that we are invited into, and then spaces that don't feel as safe and we're not as um I guess, welcomed. Um, but, you know, amazingly, Raleigh-Durham was a beautiful area and it is filled with so many individuals who, you know, are really exposed to the world outside of these, you know, small towns. Um, so they weren't so concerned. I think they were really excited for us to be able to train at Duke and to be a part of a great institution. Um, and yeah, really further our careers as another stepping stone. We've been talking to Jenny Wang, Ph.D. That's her website, Jenny Wang, Ph.D. I, Jenny, I must tell you I have a kinship towards you automatically just because my daughter is, uh, was at Duke um, as well, but now, and we call her Jenny still as opposed, <laughs> as opposed to uh, other members of the family who are Jennifer. So um, I like the name Jenny, so thank you for uh, reminding me of my daughter, if for nothing else. Uh, but that's, that's it's, and, and Duke, of course. Um, the, uh, and one of the, I, I always have to tell this story about, I think almost every student at, at Duke must be mentally deranged to stay out in, <laughs> for the camera on, craziness of uh, standing in tents for hours, for days, um, living in tents while getting uh, basketball tickets. So I must say, do you consider that a mentally normal activity? <laughs> you know, I think they're just highly committed, right? And I think as human beings, when there's some goal that we're aiming for, we're willing to do a lot of things, even if they're very uncomfortable. Um, but I must say the school spirit at Duke is something that is very special and something to behold. And, um, you know, I think for students who go to school there, it is such a great sense of camaraderie that they get to be a part of something like that. So I don't know if it's normal, but it's certainly highly entertaining. Well, after the current uh, Coach K leaves or retires, so to speak, as he's doing this year. Do you expect it to keep that same intensity up? I think that Coach K has built such a legacy at Duke that it will continue and they will find a way to, um, yeah, really just maintain the spirit at that school. Now, when you were there, you were actually... I assume a doing a residency in your field. Yes, I was there for my postdoctoral fellowship. And did, were you seeing patients at that time? I Students was. Or other? Yes, I was actually working on the solid organ transplant service. Yes. Ah, and um, you never got to see any of the students 
who would complain about not getting tickets and feeling that is failure? <laughs> no, I was not part of the counseling center, so didn't really get to interact with students much. <laughs> but the now solid organ transplants um, is it's an interesting field because you have to be very psychologically prepared for it because of the drugs and the changes that occur with that. Is that true? Absolutely, yes. We would do the pre, um, pre-transplant evaluations as well as the post-transplant support if it was necessary. Um, yeah, and, you know, the, the patients would be vetted pretty intensively to assess whether or not they were ready for the mental and physical um the struggle, right, of recovery post-transplant um, and to make sure that they took care of their bodies because they were being, in effect, kind of gifted a second chance at life. Uh, speaking of that, w- with the recent shooting at the school in Texas, it appears mm-hmm. that one of the outcomes of that will be increased mental health support. Um, that is, it's it's unclear to me yet from reading what I've been able to read about the bill, about what kind of support other than financial support for more mental health services. Um, how will that affect the Asian community? I think it really depends on how how the distribution of that financial support is really kind of um, where it's placed, I guess, you know, I think uh, on an ideal level, you know, it would benefit, you know, students, it would benefit perhaps, you know, the individuals who are able to receive this support to utilize towards mental health care. But I'm not quite certain, um, you know, how they're going to distribute that and whether or not that's going to go to underserved, underprivileged communities, or if it's going to, you know, go broadly, um, you know, across the board. But I do believe that mental health support is um, one of the barriers is access because of financial limitations. And I think um, Asian Americans, even though, you know, we are seen stereotypically as being highly resourced, financially stable, highly educated, Asian Americans also fall within the some of the lowest tiers in terms of income level. And that just tells you how widespread kind of the lived experience is for Asian Americans. Some of the hardest hit Asian American individuals over the pandemic were actually Asian elders who lived in major cities like New York and San Francisco Bay Area area. And they were, you know, our, many of our community had to create nonprofits to even just provide food to Asian elders. Um, and so, you know, it kind of gives you a sense that within that term Asian American, there's so much diversity within experience, income, resources. And so that's why it's really dangerous to paint Asian Americans in these broad strokes and utilize these stereotypes to then drive resource allocation. I have enjoyed talking to you enormously, as you will do when you read the book, Permission to Come Home. Um, it really is a uh, stimulating, interesting, and uh, what I would call different approach. Um, JennyWangPhD.com 
is a way of accessing it as well as on Amazon and hopefully at your independent bookstore um, as she weaves together the stories of strength, pain, resilience, and the differences, I, at least as I take it, in um, the cultural differences that evolve to make uh, mental health care even more difficult in Asian Americans than many of the rest of us. The book again, Permission to Come Home. Thanks, Jenny, for coming on the show. And by the way, we are, as usual, sponsored by lifesfirstnaturals.com, the makers of both True Biotics, a wonderful blend of what is demonstrated in randomized controlled studies to be beneficial for some specific um, uses. You'll want to read about um, bone health as well as immune health in on their website, lifesfirstnaturals.com, as well as bovine colostrum, um, which is very useful for people who take non-steroidals, even aspirin daily. Um, as well as if you are a type A exerciser and get um, bloating or GI leaky gut syndrome after um, strenuous exercise. Thanks very much, Caitlin, for great engineering. Again, to Jenny Wang, Jenny Wang, PhD, Permission to Come Home has been the name of the book we've been talking about, and especially you are the people who've downloaded us. Thanks very much. You're what make it worthwhile. We'll be back next week. Remember the A segments, always the latest medical news of the week, and the Bs, great guests like Jenny Wang. Thanks again.